0: Hey everyone, it's Joe Chickeron coming at you with Archive Edition number three. This one is with Jim Trunick. Jim Trunick has a remarkable story to tell. Jim is an author of a book, The Core of Leadership. He was my third interview, posted this in April of 2021. Jim has touched so many people. He wrote a book that documents his journey and the untimely death of his wife from leukemia Also, in this episode, I lost touch with Jim for a while. He had a bad bike accident during COVID and he was unconscious. He was on almost life support and he came through and he shares the story of what the rehab was like. Jim is a remarkably empathetic person. He can teach the skills of leadership and how to connect culture as good as anyone I've ever seen. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Just a quick glimpse of the next season coming up post Labor Day. We are going to have New York Times bestselling author Derek Sivers. We're going to have Jeffrey Gittermer, the king of sales, who has 18 best-selling books on sales and business and marketing. He's someone that I have read and followed and studied for a number of years. I was so excited to get Jeffrey on the show. That's coming up. We have Phil Martelli the hall of fame coach from the St. Joe's Hawks, now associate head coach of the university of Michigan, who took the team to the elite eight and sweet 16 appearances. It's a great hour. Can't wait to share that one. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the follow button and please give us a review. It helps the show grow and reach a bigger audience. If you can do both of those, I really appreciate it. So thank you for listening. Please enjoy Archive Edition Built Not Born number three with Jim Trunick, the core of leadership. And remember, life is built, not born. JT Jim Trunick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, who are you and what do you do?
1: (laughs) Who am I and what do I do? Well, I'm a parent. I'm a spouse. I'm a grandparent. I'm a former employee of Allergan Pharmaceuticals for 36 and a half years. In the past seven years, I have been an air executive coach, and so I'm taking some of the things I've learned in corporate business to apply them to C-suite leaders as they try and work with teams and communications and a host of other challenges in their work. And enjoying that uh, that part of my work as well as celebrating with uh, my wife and kids and grandkids where did you grow up? I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio with my sister. I'm three years older than her. My mom and my dad worked in Cincinnati. They bought the house six months before I was born, and they both passed away there. They lived there for 60 years and went to the same church in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my dad was with Procter & Gamble. My mom was a dental hygienist, my sister spent her whole career at Procter and Gamble as well, and I spent my whole career at Allergan. So it's an opportunity for me to look back and reflect on words that my dad lived by about dedication, uh, commitment, uh, loyalty. Those were the standards that my dad and my mom moved through their life with, and I passed. The, they passed those on to my sister and myself. But Cincinnati and and uh, I went to Ohio State, which is two hours away, and I moved to California from Cleveland. I was there for ten years. So. I know back, background is, uh, is Ohio. I know that area pretty well.
0: When you think back around the dinner table, when it was your mom, your dad, your sister, what was it like sitting around that dinner table? Describe that.
1: You know, it was, uh, I would I, the word I would use is real. My mom and dad would ask my sister and I about our friends and about our school. And we'd talk to them about their friends and things they were doing. And it was somewhat humorous. It was somewhat serious. It was always... Family. It was just the four of us, and it was a special time for us. I know my sister and I still to this day look back on our time with our parents as being very special.
0: What's the most powerful memory of your childhood?
1: You know, it's funny you say that. I, I, as you said that, I was thinking most powerful for me was the vacation. My mom and dad uh, took us to Northern Michigan for on Lake in Traverse City area, and we would vacation there for a week and sometimes two weeks in the, in a cottage up there, and. My parents met some friends and we did some boating and we got a chance to be outside and really enjoyed summertime. That for me was a very special place. In fact, during college, I worked up at that uh, cabin like resort for three summers. And so it was part of my childhood, but also became part of my adult le- working experience at working at a resort and working with uh, boating and fishing and all kinds of other things. So that was a special time for our family and for my, uh, for my growing up period too.
0: How does someone who grew up in Cincinnati? is a Buckeye wind up in Southern California in the O.C.
1: You know, it's funny. I was uh, I was my my degree at Ohio State was zoology. And so I went to Ohio State to be in veterinary medicine. I was pre-veterinary medicine, but I had neither the references or recommendations or grade point to get into veterinary school. But I wound up in pharmaceuticals and I wound up joining a small pharmaceutical firm called Allergan. It's the only company I ever joined in 1977. And. I happened to join them as a sales representative for pharmaceutical products because I had a high science degree, uh, life science background, and the world headquarters for Allergan was Irvine, California. So I wound up in Southern California because I got a chance to get involved in sales, but then sales management and marketing, and then a host of other roles and, and responsibilities I had that were in the home office in Irvine. So I moved out here in 1990 after having joined them in 1977, and I still live here now. I've had a couple of different homes out here, but it's here in Southern California.
0: How does someone start in zoology and wind up selling? How does that happen? Walk us through that.
1: It happened in the 80s, 1980s. That's exactly how you got to pharma. Business background, sociology did not matter. You wanted to get in pharma, you better have a bio background. You better have zoology. You better have botany. Because life sciences was everything to calling on physicians. And the business background did not matter until the 2000s. And now you've got a lot of business people who know business, but they're learning science. I knew science and had to learn business. And so with my persona to try and be more outgoing, it worked well for me to take my life science and then move into a sales role. But that uh, was not common to hire a lot of sales people into sales jobs. We took science people and taught them selling skills.
0: It's almost the exact opposite to these days. I mean, there's exceptions, but I think it's probably leaning towards the other side than that. That, that is. You talk to, to people
1: my age now, I'm 65. You talk to people my age, many who are in pharma, many of them know people, their boss or themselves had a high science background to get into this profession.
0: So you move out to Southern California. You're, what's your first impressions of Southern California when you got out there?
1: Well, I, my first impressions were when I came out here in 1977 for training and I spent a couple of weeks out here in a training environment and said, man, if I ever screw up bad enough to live out here, I'm coming here because <laughs> I moved here from Ohio and I can I can assure you winter in Southern California is a very different experience. And so I worked very hard to try and get my way to Southern California. It was a goal. <laughs>
0: It was yeah. I think winners when you go from flip flops to sneakers. I mean that that's the that's the winter gear in in, in 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 Irvine.
1: You mean you don't have snowblowers and boots out here? What the <laughs> heck?
0: <laughs> so you're out there. What was it like selling? So you're a science person. What was it like going in and selling? Like you're actually a salesperson now. How? Take us through that. What was that experience like?
1: You know, there was a lot of big learnings for me. I was so young and I was so novice about what I was really trying to do. I think one of the ex- things I've learned about business today is I work with coaching and a lot of senior leaders now. We're hiring people as much as possible with more experience and more perspective and more human experiences. In those days, when I was starting off in a sales role, I was so inexperienced and learning so much so fast that you had to take you know, the mistakes with the successes and begin to say, what am I learning from all of this? And so that learning spirit is one of the things I've learned in, um, in leadership and in growing people's careers for me and for others. You need to have a learning spirit. You need to be curious. You need to know yourself. Don't worry about so many other people. Stop worrying about all the society and what everyone else is doing. Stop. Start looking at you. What do you stand for? What are you trying to be? What are you matching up to what you say is important to you or not? If you can align what you say with what you think, that alignment starts getting into strength of leadership and character. And so those are the things I learned is to, while I had some successes, I had a lot of failures too. And I listened to all kinds of people to help me to try and get better.
0: You need that learning mindset to be able to adapt, adjust. Where does that come from? Does that come from inside, outside? Like, can cannot be acquired. They say someone doesn't have that now. Like where can they find that?
1: I think they've all got it. Every one of us has it. Why? Because most of us had parents or teachers or mentors or somebody who said to us growing up, stop it. Whatever you're doing, stop doing that. And you listened and you paid attention. Why? Because they loved you and they cared about you. And that's why leadership now today has to be fierce and foremost about caring for people because people will listen longer and care more. And so I got corrected and I knew that it was time to fix some things I was saying or doing because the people who were telling me cared about me and they wanted to see me be okay. And so I learned early on to take, to take uh, direction. We have a lot of spirit today about freedom and autonomy and individualism and, and empowerment, but being able to take correction in the, in the way that's coming from someone who cares that sense of followership. It's always been there it, from parents and people who care about you. Do you listen or do you say, no, no, I'll just do it my own way. Okay. And then you'll say to yourself weeks or months or years from now, how's that working for you? And maybe you need to have listened to somebody else who's got more experience and perspective longer. And so those are the things I think are already there. The question is, how much do you, do you listen to them? And frankly, not everyone's had a great upbringing. You know, I'm very fortunate that my parents and my sister and I got along and we had some successes as families. Not everybody's as blessed to have that, and their family environments and their mentor environments may be harmful, may be abusive, may not be correct. And all of that takes patience and thoughts to think through how do I learn from all of this and how do I wind up being better as I go forward? That sense of learning, I think carries a lot of us through being being adaptable and being successful.
0: Looking back, what's the biggest challenge you ever had to overcome? <laughs>
1: You know, a part of it would be in roles that I played in my corporate life, where I talked myself and I sold other people in things that I could do that I'd never done. <laughs> 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 I, I can do that. I'll be better at this. I can fix that. I'll win that. I'll, I'll, I'll results this. Because I listened to myself. I had this sense of optimum belief in myself and thoughtfulness and you call it optimism or whatever. It's also naivete. I think the biggest learning was taking on jobs and taking on roles and taking on responsibility. I was never prepared to be a parent. I've got three kids and three grandkids now. I got remarried and I have a total of five, blended family with five kids, my three and her two. And the learnings across all of that sector, we could talk for a long time about what am I learning about being a parent or a spouse or whatever. It's rich to go through those experiences. But yeah, The individual jobs I first took that I thought I could do, and I (laughs) convinced people I could do them, and then someone stood by me and said, that's not quite right, Jim. Try this. Okay, that's better.
0: So you authored a book a few years back called The Core of Leadership. Learning to lead from the middle. How did you know you had a book in you? What brought the book about?
1: So... The thing I enjoyed most about my career and all the different things I had done as a manager and marketing and leading salespeople and often working with research groups and different types of organizations internally and operations was coaching, listening, learning, helping. I liked doing that. I wanted to see other people grow and they'd be able to say to themselves, hey, I'm better. Hey, I'm doing things different. Yes, maybe Jim helped me. But most importantly, they themselves did it. So that inspired me, I think, to to capture the stories and perspectives about that. The core of leadership, the title of that, and the title is The Core of Leadership, Winning in the Middle. The reason it says it that way is it's two things. Winning in the middle is that corporations have 20% of their performers that are rock stars, top performers. They've got 20% that are struggling, maybe in the wrong jobs. The 60% in the middle that is the growth of a corporation. That's the survival. That's the brand. That's the 60%. That is the middle. That's the part that needs to be listened to and ask for input and care more about customer service and results and relationships than the top performers or those that are struggling to be in the bottom, that middle performing group. That's the core of leadership. And secondly, core of leadership is character. It's not about results as much as it is about uh, the inner character of the leaders that are involved. We spend so much time with analysis and results and performance. Yes, those are important, but only as they relate to the ability to impact other people, to impact other customers, to impact other societies and communities. It is about the core of leadership, the character of leadership. And managing people, managing things is about tasks and about getting things done. Leadership is about character and inspiring others to be the better sense of themselves. And so that's not easy to do, but it's the core of leadership a sense of uh, character and a sense of the larger part of the organization that wins from the middle. So that's kind of where that came from. And I started capturing all that. And I'd been taking notes for six years. I'd go to church sermons or I'd go to different business meetings or society groups where people would talk to me on the phone, like you, Joe, and you'd say something. I'd go, oh, well, that's pretty good. And I'd write that down and I saved it all in a journal. And then one day I took a great big bag of journal notes to a publisher and said, Hey, can you take all this stuff and help me make a book out of it? Mm-hmm. And they did. Yeah. And I wound up uh, very pleased with that uh, core leadership uh, outcome.
0: You mentioned about character. One of the sentences, uh, one of the lines in the book, I really stuck out for me. He said, If you want to be, this is your quote, if you want to be a better salesperson, you need to be a better person. Heraclitus said, Character is fate. And I think that is. You find that throughout life business life, professional life, family life. It starts with character. And yeah yeah. Also, in the book, you tell an incredible story about how you lost your first wife, Terry, at 41 to leukemia. Can you talk about that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind?
1: Well, sure, Joe, and thanks for asking. yeah, I did capture that in the book a little bit. I uh, uh, had, uh, she had it for five years in leukemia and a lot of tests, and we lost her. After after five years, and so it was um, frustrating for her as a, as she got more advanced in her leukemia. It was uh, CML, chronic myelogenic um, leukemia. It, um, it caused her to get a little weaker and a little more tired, and wasn't raising the kids like she wanted to and needed to. And and I was trying to be business worker and get things done, but I'm trying to be a parent and and so. Having gone through that experience and the things I'm learning about her and the kids and myself and just seems so removed from work that um, it was uh, it was it was it was challenging and it was stressful. And it was, of course, in her situation, getting weaker and, and then finally passing away uh, the hospitalization and then all the tests and the bone marrow transplants. It was just difficult to see her not survived bone marrow transplants. It was the cyclosporin and all the medications that led her to be weak. And she got infected because of the therapy in the hospitals and got weaker from infections that her system could not respond to. The fortified antibiotics did not work strong enough. And, uh, and we lost her back in, uh, in 1998. So to to say goodbye to her and to try and be a parent to the kids, that learning for me was, uh, was challenging. Uh, of course, with any parent who loses another loved loved one, um, Terry uh, and I met at Ohio State, and we had been married um, since I was, uh, you know, just with Allergan for a couple of years, and so we got married. We were married for 20 years, uh, 19 and a half years. It didn't quite get to our 20th anniversary, but uh, big, uh, big learnings, uh, big challenges, and for the kids too. They've had their challenges since then. Uh, we've had depression, we've had uh, drugs, we've had. Um, gender, uh, challenges, uh, for them and they're fine now and they still talk to me regularly, but it's been a lot of rough road and I've got blended family because of, uh, having lost one of the spouses. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, one of those things you have to kind of smile about at some point, but, um, uh, I know Terry's looking down on us and knowing that we're doing the best we can and, and we're learning a lot every day.
0: Thanks for sharing that. One, one of the things I think your book hits So hard, like it's so profound. Like, like when I couldn't put it down, I think the honesty and the vulnerability you wrote with in those chapters were like so real. And, like, and there were just life lessons were dripping off each page. It took so much courage to write a book that way. Uh, What was it like? So, you're back in 1998, Tari had this, she battled leukemia, she passed. So, here you are on the other side of the country probably a high maintenance job. You're working for a pharmaceutical company. You have three kids to raise. You're by yourself. What was that like? What's going through your mind?
1: Yeah. You know, I had lots of people trying to help me to get more and more help and more and more people. And of course, part of me says, yes. And part of me says, I can do it. You know, this independent society, about I can get it done. I can make it. I can be a mom and I can be a dad. Turns out I was neither. I'll be a good employee. Guess what? I wasn't that either. I wasn't a good worker. I wasn't a good employee. I wasn't a good dad and I wasn't a good mom. And I was determined at the outset to be great at all of that. That is an education. That is a learning to begin to realize you need some help. And when the kids are struggling, you know, we had two nannies, uh, one for transportation and one for food. I had someone to help me cook the meals. I had someone to help me drive them all the exercises. And, the, you know, the kids were uh, nine, eleven 11, and 13 or 14 when they passed, 14, 11, and nine were the kids when they passed, uh, when, when, when uh, Terry passed. And so, you know, we're in a lot of different stuff, three different schools, they're going to three different activities, they got their friends and they're getting all this attention for being a, a child without a parent. And they didn't know what to do with that either. And and I didn't know what to do with it. And so, yeah, it was uh, it was tough, but you start finding those things that are most critical. And that's the thing I I, I lean into now. What is a priority? You better make sure you know what the real priorities are, because I could tell you the time I wasted in my career on things that I thought were important were just things I kind of liked to do or wanted to do and wanted to get better at, and at the end of the day, meant nothing to anybody else and weren't really all that important. Until I had the passing with Terry and I realized certain issues with the kids how they were doing things had to become and were becoming much more important and higher priorities that other stuff I thought was important in other works of my life, I just minimized and didn't do them. You got to say no to stuff that's just not that important because society right now, the information flow that we have, oh my goodness, we're already busy 24-7 and and now we don't even sleep anymore. I mean, this is crazy. Uh, We need the rest. We need the sleep. And I, I struggled through those times trying to pull that all together, but I found it out because I'd say to myself, what really is important here is not just a want, I got to focus on the needs, my needs, the kids' needs, what's a real need for their future, their education, other stuff, things that might be upsetting a friend, I can't worry about that. <laughs> I have time.
0: I think there's a Steve Jobs line. He said something in that book he had from Walter Isaacson. It said, there's nothing worse than doing something efficiently that should not be done at all. And great. Uh, you have a great quote there, how the storm you went through with that, with three young, 14, 11, and 9, and your white passing. Your quote is, calm seas, raise amateur sailors. You might be an admiral at this point. <laughs> you, you could be well, yeah.
1: Everything's calm. You know, you're not tested for anything. People yeah. talk about how strong you are or how successful you are. Was because you've been tested, you've yeah. been broken, you've been beaten, you've learned somewhere, as opposed to a sailor who's never been on a, a rocky sea. I don't want to say what that guy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Even, even you go back like 2000 years ago, Seneca, who I'm a fan of, said something, and I'm going to butcher the quote for the people that never tried anything and never, he goes, those poor people that go to the grave having no idea what they were really truly capable of. Yeah, no idea what you're made of because life never had the opportunity to see what you're made of, you know?
1: Great point, Joe. Great point.
0: I like the proposal story with Cindy. So how'd you meet Cindy and how, walk us through that.
1: Well, I'd I'd known uh, Cindy at Allergan. She was at Allergan. We were friends and she worked on the similar teams and we did some different work together. And when Terry had passed away, Cindy was no longer with Allergan. She departed. I hadn't seen her for months. And all of a sudden I saw her in the hall one day. And I said, uh, hey, she goes, yeah, I, I came back. They called me and HR and some different things. And so I'm back in house Terry? Well, she's uh, she's in a real tough spot. And this was the last few days uh, before she passed. And so she'd been very kind and very supportive, and as were so many other people. But as she had uh, two kids and was divorced and I was at myself without Terry for a while, uh, you know, about a year later, we started talking and went on a few dates. And next thing you know, we got a year later, we we're married. So. I met her at Allergan, and we had similar kinds of interests and in about business and about trying to get things done, and it was enjoyable and fun. And she's been married now with me for 20 years, and she's become as she was my best friend, my lover, my caregiver, my, my spouse, and my kids. And they call her mom now, and and so it's uh, it's great that we have this opportunity to to grow through all that. But yeah, I met her at met her at work, met her at work.
0: Phenomenal. So in this in the book, you mentioned that when you proposed to Cindy. You proposed three times You you yeah. walked through that, three proposals, you walk, walk, walk through that one. That's yeah. Great. So
1: the, the quick story of that one, I think I've dealt in the book too, but they, I asked her to marry me three times and all three times was the same answer. Yes. And we were on a small vacation, just she and I in Arizona. And I asked her to marry me. And she said, yes. And I took the ring back and I brought it back with us. And I asked her in front of her children and she said, yes. And then I asked her in front of my children and she and they said, and she said yes. And so th- I, I wanted to make sure that they were aware that we were all doing this in front of them. And so then uh, she sold her house and I sold my house and we moved into this house and we wound, wound up in a new home that we were all together for the first time as a uh, as a married family. And so we tried to stage it in a way that was respectful to all the kids and who they were with us and who that we were trying to be together. But uh, I did ask her to marry me three times and she said yes all three times.
0: <laughs> That is awesome. How about, you have a great quote, another quote in the book. You say, especially with the blended family, you say, we have wonderful kids who are not me. And I I think that's a great perspective because there's, I I mean, I see it on the baseball field. I see it in the swimming pool where there's parents that maybe were great swimmers, great baseball players that are forcing, really putting a lot of pressure on their kids to be them or like finish off the childhood that they did not complete, want them to be like them, Want them whatever their parents' interests are, or trying to make them little versions of them. And yeah, yeah. you put, I have kids who are not me, you love them who they are and let them give them guidance, let them go their own way. Could you speak to that? I, I think that's a great quote in the book, a lot of yeah. parent wisdom there.
1: I say that in the book.
0: You did. Joe. I have wonderful kids that are not me. I wrote that down. That's,
1: that's, cool. a, that's a great quote. I forgot I said that one. I really like that one too, Joe, for the things you just said. It's about diversity. My big line today, the, the sentence I like to say now is culture without diversity is a cult.
0: <laughs> that's perfect. Culture without we diversity know what a is
1: culture a cult. Is, but we know is. what a cult is and we don't be part of it. Cult, cults are negative. Cults are dominating. Cults are not what we want to try and be. Culture Without diversity is a cult. And that's kind of what that kind of talks about the family there is I've realized my kids think and act and do things differently than I do. Good for them. And they're going to learn new ways to get things done and to appreciate that and not try and be, you know, there's some things about, you know, if they're not being respectful to certain people or they're, or they're being too abrasive to other people, or not being kind or certain things that are part of my core competencies that aren't there. I may have a conversation or debate some things with them, but otherwise, what they're good at math or not good at math or what they are good at art and they're not good at, un, or not, or not good at art, it's up to them to decide who they want to try and be. And I'm, I'm proud of them for having done that through all five kids, all doing very different things today and who they are. It does make me better because I learn from them.
0: What values do you try to pass on to your kids?
1: Yeah, integrity, leadership, passion, fun. Those be uh, family and faith. Those are the six, and I have my six values. I know them. I practice them. I do my coaching with 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 values. You know the integrity piece that goes along with that is about authenticity and knowing who you are. You know, you talked about honesty earlier, and the way I, w- I wrote the book, the number one key principle of leadership that creates followers is honesty. You can be a lot of different things as a leader, but if you're not honest. You lose followers fast. Then you have to have some some vision and some competence, and then a sense of inspiration. Those are the four: honesty, vision, competence. Can do things, can get some skills accomplished, and then inspire people, touch my heart. Those are the four of what people uh, need as a follower from a leader. The individual leaders we've all got different values: some creativity, some structure some integrity, some about uh, balance of life. Leaders and all of us have our own sense of leadership for who we are. But for me, that sense of integrity and, and passion and fun about who they're trying to be has, has helped me talk about that with them. And they've, cre- they've created their own values, too. We have cards that we think about and talk about. And they shift and change over time a little bit. But those those values that uh, shape your decisions can be very helpful.
0: One of, I think, one of the more eye-opening little uh, Act, uh, projects I ever worked on uh, or trainings. One time, I think when we first met big training class you were leading and you broke those cards out and everyone got a deck of those cards and there was 52, whatever, 60 cards. And then it's all honesty, courage, humility, uh, praise, whatever, all these different attributes that you could have in your life, faith, family, money. And then you go, all right, take half the cards away. Put one half that's you, one half that's not you. And that's really simple. I put the what's not me, what I think's me. And then they go, all right, Now cut it down to 20. And they got a little harder, but then you get to like, get it to 10. And you're like, whoa. And you're like looking at words like like achievement and character and, and just these big picture words that you're like, I, I want to be all of these. But then you go bring it down to six. And it's like integrity, faith. And you really figure out what's important. Then you have to rank them from one to six. And that really, I, I still remember of all the trainings I've been through. I remember that and like that. And I actually took a picture of that. And I still have that in my, my photo reel on my phone of like the six values. Like they adjust over time. But that really is eye-opening. I mean, when you start uh, doing I think,
1: that? I, and thanks for bringing that up and quick, quick comment on that. I've got people who get down to their last few values and they've got integrity, honesty, and authenticity. And they're all three, and they can't decide which one. But as, as, they, as they have to try and have other words in their grouping, they will, they will, they will pick one. They might, they might pick all three. But if they take, if they take integrity over uh, authenticity and honesty, why? Why did you choose that word? There's things in your background with people you loved or cared about that said, I want to put that word in my final six. These other two might be my top 10, but they won't be my top six. And to to, to concentrate and to think and debate and to study it within yourself, that is not a waste of time. It's called values and they shape your purpose in life. They shape the decisions you make. The things you enjoy in a job is because that job aligns mostly to your values. If you're in a company or a job or an environment that doesn't truly match up to the words that you say or your values, You're miserable. You're not happy. So find the values that shapes the purpose for who you want to try and be as a purpose. And I believe companies have a bigger responsibility than just making paychecks or great jobs available. I think they do have a a development of people in in, in line that says, we want people that stayed with the company that they're they're with or that they leave the company. They they look back on someday having been with the company that gave them these values that said, yeah, I didn't stay there all that long, but that was a great company. I met some great people there. I learned a lot. That's the goal, is that someday you have value beyond just the role of their employmentship.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned in the book, uh, following up on that, you said that you don't do the work through the people. You do the people through the work. You're developing people first, and then the work gets done because you have good people there.
1: Look at, look at you, Joe. Look at the growth you've had in your career, the experiences you've had, the perspectives you have now, all because of work you did. 10, 20 years ago, and things that you're le- learning about yourself and who you want to try and be goes back to your values, your purpose, and if you don't, <laughs> stop doing this and go do something else, but I can tell you love this stuff, and you want and the things you're thinking about are, are valuable for your values and your purpose, and uh, I think that's the shape for a lot of people who need to go through that too.
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. The um, we were talking a little bit offline before we started. You went through an incredible year. Some people went through a tough COVID year. Like twenty twenty was a real challenge. And uh, maybe they got, or maybe their job struggled or whatever. They were stuck in their house with their kids. Walk us through what was your twenty twenty like? What did you go through during the COVID year?
1: April 25th, 2020, I was bike riding with a buddy. We'd ridden 25 miles. I was riding down a road to try and meet him at a, we were just, we, he was right behind me about 30 or 40 feet, but I, my front tire, my bicycle flipped inside of a, cur, a crack in a road. I didn't expect it threw me in the air 12 feet and I was unconscious and I was bleeding and the ambulance came and picked me up and threw me literally in there as brain damage and in the hospital and so I was uh, unconscious and I was bleeding and I was cracked skull and I was all my my whole right side of my ribs and clavicle were broken and destroyed. My lung collapsed, bro- uh, cracked the pelvis. I was on life support for four days. I was in the ICU for 28 days, hospital for 20 or for eight, uh, eight weeks. I'm sorry. Yeah, eight weeks, two months, a little bit more. And um, it's taking me a long time to get back to some humanity. Um, A lot of medications, a lot of doctor visits, a lot of blood tests, a lot of things with post-surgical brain, uh, the skull surgery, and and the ribs being replaced. Man, talk about a learning opportunity. (laughs) I'm sitting here today probably 90 plus, 95% back to kind of where I was normal. I used to have my own scale that said in this injury that I don't remember any of it. Seven, eight weeks, I don't know it. I can tell you stories about what's going on, but that's other people's telling me stories. I had no memory, gone. Um, But I've talked to people about uh, these different experiences. And even right now, as I'm trying to tell you this story about my accident and I wanted to tell you something, I forgot it. I don't remember what I was trying to tell you. It was a little story and I might remember it, but with the brain injury, I start to talk and then all of a sudden I forget. I don't remember it as well. And I can't finish my story. And you'll tell me something and I want to ask you something in your conversation. Then I forget what I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. I'm 90, 95%. I'm not quite back yet. And so there's things that I'm learning about myself that uh, uh, I, I forgot um, through that experience. So I um, but I had the uh I had the, the chance in the hospital and in all the different uh, environment things to uh, to not know anything and uh, and to learn a lot through other people. A couple of things I said about learnings. People asked me one time, "Well, do you remember anything?" I said, No. <laughs> What'd you learn? Three things. Number one, concentrate on the priorities. For me, getting my breath back, being able to breathe. I couldn't taste food. I didn't care. I was trying to be able to breathe. I, I and the scale, and here's what I was going to tell you earlier, but I just remembered it is the scale of zero to 100. Doctors didn't tell me this, but I saw in my injury zero to 100. If you're a zero, you're dead. If you're a hundred, you're back to normal you. Not necessarily great, just a normal you. And I'm 90, 95% of that. I met people after uh, the surgery and as I was leaving a rehab center about eight weeks later that were in eights and nines. They're not walking or talking very well at all and mumbling and stumbling. And they're my age or a little bit younger, accidents, cars, bikes, boats, and motors, something. And they aren't going to come back. They're going to monitor their, their learnings uh, a lot over the, over the years. And I'm so blessed and so fortunate and so grateful. And I don't say that blindly or just uh, as, a, as a glib tone. I know people that are my age and younger that are not going to come back from brain injuries from, but that the morning I left the house and said, honey, I'm gonna go for a bike ride for a couple hours back in a little bit. Boom. Wow. And so I, um, I continue to learn a great deal through all, but the three things I learned, number one was a priority. What's really important and spend time on that. Number two, my big learning dependence is power. We were so focused on independent and I'll do it and I got this and I'll take care of that and don't bother me. And I'm not going to waste your time. Start wasting other people's time. Let them help. Because when you ask somebody for help, the first thing that does to the other person is says, hey, I'm important. I got knowledge. I got capability. I get insights. I can be valuable to them. Your what? Your spouse, your parents, your kids. Hey, could you do me a favor? Could you help me? They're paying full attention. The opportunity for you to give them that help is dependence. And we as independent thinkers in society says, no, no, I'll do it myself. I've learned to be dependent is power. And I need some help with medications. I need some help with remembering things. I need some help with food. I need some help with not drinking any more bourbon. There's things I get to learn about myself and things I got to know about who I am. Dependence is power because I learn better and I help other people by asking for help. And then thirdly, my my wife, Cindy, who has been my friend and lover and and best friend and all that for my 20 20 years of marriage. And we are wonderful. And now we're wonderful. Plus, because as she walked through my tragedy in the hospital for eight weeks and near death and waiting for the phone call every night that said we did the best we could. He didn't make it. She's become a warrior to bureaucracy, to things she doesn't believe in, to people who don't want to try and help, to people who are helpful, but not in helping the right way. She's become adamant about finances and insurance and taxes and things that I didn't know about and forgotten about, along with being a tremendous parent and caregiver and, and nurturer of our of our relationship. Wow. I knew those things about her. They never got tested because I was so busy doing them. Now, I haven't got a much greater appreciation for her, for my sense of dependence is power and learning about time management,s about the priorities in my life, not about somebody else's you got to do this. So those are some learnings I had from this 2020 timeframe. And it's, you know, the recovery from these brain injuries, this, it's a year plus. Talk to people who've been through this and know this isn't something they just fix and, and get better at over time. Every day, the thing they told my wife and the, the doctor told my wife when I was in the hospital, she said, the doctor said to my wife, uh, just pretend that his brain is a, a switchboard and all the cords for the phone meter have been unplugged, everything. He doesn't know your name. He doesn't know his name. He doesn't know if his heart should beat or not. And the body is faxing it as fast as they can. And sometimes they connect really well. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's the right spot. Sometimes it may take a long time. It may take a long time to reconnect. The brain's trying very hard to get it all back. And I'm so fortunate to be at 90, 95% back to where I was. And other people are at 7 or 8%, 9%. And they'll not come back. The brain just can't reconnect those things the way they were before the brain switch and the, and the telephone operator kind of phone visual helped us think about, yeah, I'm still learning, still learning. 95%
0: of JT, I'll take over a hundred percent of anybody. (laughs) I'm just about every other person I come across. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Two quotes that stuck out to me in your book that you wrote years before. One, you wrote about Robert Frost quote from Frost that said, the best way out is always through. Yeah, And you just mentioned you had to go through it. And you had a little Helen Keller quote. It said, the best way around any problem is through it. And there are different parts of the book, but you had to go through that storm. And Cindy had to go through that storm. And you come out the other side. Basically, you said wonderful. I mean, actually, you became a better version of yourself going through like your marriage, and you get a better version of yourself coming out through a storm that way. That's crazy!
1: Wow, thanks for you're sharing so that. kind. Oh, thanks for bringing that up, and thanks for saying those thing. It's very kind of you, man.
0: So, from this point, going through something like that, you mentioned eight weeks in a coma. Is that is that fair to say?
1: I was I was I was comatose. I was in and out of of. I wasn't totally in a coma. Part of the time I was, yes, but I was comatose. Basically, I have no memory. I can't tell you anything that happened during that. What was going on? My my wife said that they'd give me some pills and I'd chew them. They're like, no, 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 swallow them. And I'd chew them. In fact, if I was in the hospital and uh, Cindy hadn't seen me because it was COVID, she couldn't see me, right? It took her a week to even get to see me in the hospital. And then when she came to the hospital, I'd been in the bed for a week and it was near dead. And she starts to start screaming, honey, honey, because I hadn't turned my head yet. And finally, I kind of turned my head a little bit towards her. And I said, hey, baby. (laughs) The nurse looked at her and said, oh, my God, he's in there. He knows you. That's your, that's your husband. Before then, I was not even any more than a box of tissues or a chair. I didn't even know I was a human being. Fair <laughs> she, she said that the nurse said to her, he's in there. And she said to my wife, that is extremely encouraging for me as a nurse who worked with these brain injuries for a long time. Wow. Isn't that the learning that you have to have is, hey, baby. And that's the part they remember. Wow.
0: Going through something like that at this stage of your life, what is your personal definition of success? How do you define success?
1: My learning has been crystallized. I think I kind of knew it before, but it really became crystallized. If, you, if I look around the world at what I think are great leaders, not just military or business or sports or anything else, but parents, great leaders. One of my learnings is one of the areas I can get better. And I believe the key tenant and the key trait is patience. Mm. Look at all the different things around you before you start emotionally making statements and connecting and doing and acting and everything about our society is go fast, 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 fast. My learning is that the best leaders are the ones who are thoughtful who are observant, who don't know all the answers, who are curious, who are paused, who have a sense of patience. That thoughtfulness is also a sense of thankfulness for their gratitude of other things around them before they act and say, sometimes you gotta, I used to say to people, you know, sometimes I have to yell at somebody not to cross the street in front of traffic. But other times I need to just listen and say, "Huh, it's interesting. I need to hear more about that. You got to know what situation is uh, life-threatening and what's life-growing. And if it's more life-growing, it's about patience and listening. And so those characteristics, I think, get uh, under, uh, underserved in a society. It's about how fast and how results-oriented we can be. The real leaders and the people we respect in society are the ones who are thinking and listening more. And that sense of patience comes to mind for me.
0: Mm-hmm. You bring up that point that that particular thought of like that patience and stopping and reflecting for a moment before you act. I think it's it's uh Stephen Covey in The 7 Habits book. Basically said that moment between reaction and response is where your life is made. It's like that, that that's where success is found or you see the stimulus and you in that Moment in between when that process is in your head, and either you act, don't act, say something, don't say something, and, and that moment you take to reflect before you react or engage with that external stimulus is going to define your life. Yeah. And, and I think you're, that's kind of what
1: you're saying. And that's why you and I talked about values a minute ago. I believe that that small pause mm-hmm. better be me thinking about what are my values, what do I stand for, what do I want to try and do, do I act now and start talking and start yelling, or Maybe I'll listen. Maybe I'll say things like, "That's I don't, I don't know more about that. Maybe you could tell me more about that. It's that pause. And I believe that's where values come into play is people who haven't spent the time to learn what really motivates them, drives them, not just skills and talents, but their real sense of core being. What's your DNA? What's your character? What do you stand for? Who are you trying to be? If you can think about that for a split second and know it pretty well, you'll make better decisions more often than not. And that's everything. Your ability in uh, in tough times or fast times is to make the better decision. Two
0: more questions. This is uh, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. What's the most exciting thing you're working on now?
1: Uh, well, the, the main thing is getting my my business back <laughs> you know, as a motivational speaker and as a trainer and as a developer of other people. And, and having no one talk to me for two months where I, my phone didn't ring. I didn't even know it was ringing. <laughs> So, so learning that, that point and and learning about, you know, trying to get back to some of those kinds of things. And the reason is because I've got intellect around that. I got interest in it. I got passion around it. I want to be better at it. I don't want to just let it go. Maybe I'll do some nonprofit work. Maybe I'll do some other construction uh, things that I do with other kinds of companies. And I'm learning a lot about executive coaching and so forth. Um, The first priority right now is uh, supporting my wife and the grandkids. As they are in, uh, they live about an hour from here. We see them a lot, and uh, taking care of the grandkids—eight, five, and three—and as they go through stay-at-home, formal, remote education uh, on the phone, and all this thing that goes on with a second grader and a pre-K and a small infant—and the lives that my my children are living—that's a higher priority, and not a waste of my time. And so that's those are the things that underneath all this drive me to try and be a better grandparent, to be a better parent, um, to be a better spouse, and those kinds of things that I can listen better and and bring value uh, through them being able to ha- talk to somebody and to be capable of solving their own problems. I, I put a quote in the LinkedIn the other day that says, compassion is taking away someone's hurt. Sympathy, I'm sorry you hurt. Empathy, I hurt with you. And that with part involves a lot of listening and patience. And that's what I'm trying to invoke Invoke in those things that are important in my life.
0: Wow, that's great. Last question. If you had to get a tattoo of your favorite motto or saying or principle, what would you tattoo on you? What, what, what would be the tattoo that JT gets and what would it say?
1: Great question, Joe. You're a thinker, man. I tend to go back to the quote, I still say once in a while, but in the battle to be right or kind, choose kind. It's closer to your values and everybody else's. Now, that's a big tattoo.
0: It's a back, it's a back tattoo. I couldn't go on the arm. You have to put that one on the back.
1: Hey, at least I got a back to put it on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's
1: but I think that's the thing I tried. And lean to is if I'm trying to be kind I'm trying to be helpful, I'm trying to be a listener, I'm trying to speak when I should or correct when I should and not. But that sense of kindness um, is more powerful and more enlightening to me than necessarily being right. I'm around a whole lot of people in my whole career and whole livelihood that are determined to be right Mm -hmm. all the time. And it's just not as attractive and I can't lean into that as much. And so I want to be right and I don't want to be wrong, but I'd rather be kind.
0: I think that, I think the Dalai Lama. I saw a quote from him. It, it, I wrote it down that said, uh, "My true religion is kindness." And uh, it just it, you can't you can't you have no kindness. It, it really doesn't matter what else is going on. If you're not kind, uh, I don't think you're leading. I don't think you're doing anything well, of note.
1: And it, 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 the other great line, big great quote, we hardly talk about it at all. Know thyself. The number one trait of great leadership is, is, uh, you know, followership is honesty. But number one for leaders is being being self-aware, this battle of right or kind. That line, know thyself, Socrates, he died four years before Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, 400 years before Jesus. These quotes, these principles we're talking about haven't been around since 2003. (laughs) They've They've been around for centuries and generations. We just have to lean into them more. Uh, I still like the line that Mark Twain said, you know, the, the older I get, the smarter my dad was. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the truth, right? Because the older we get, the more we, we look smarter because we've been through experiences in life. And the things I'm telling you now, if I told you all this stuff when you were 25 years old, you're like, what is all that? <laughs> you don't get any of that. So anyway, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's great to think about those things and, uh, and that, that value them over time.
0: I think that's a good spot Then, so Basically, kindness and know thyself. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. JT, um, where can people are looking for you online? Where can they find you?
1: They can just uh, type jimtrunick.com. That goes to Google. That goes to my worldwide website. And you can ask for copies of my blogs or my books, or you'll see some things. I talk about my philosophies that are on there. But jimtrunick.com is my website. And so that's what I send to companies that want to work with me or kind of ask for a resume. I push out the website and they can see what other people say about me and some of my philosophies. So Jimtrunick.com.
0: And then your book, where can they find the core leadership?
1: Uh, on on that website. And they can also go online and type uh, the core of leadership. You can go to Google and type Jim Trunick, and it'll come up uh, on there and uh, you can get that way. Amazon has, I uh, sell books to Amazon and so forth. It, it, which by the way, you know, you, you don't make a lot of, it took me six years to kind of break even on the book. <laughs> That's great. I mean, it, it's, it's the only leadership book out there. I think, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and, all, and
0: audible as well. I, mean, I got mine on audible lately and it's a uh, great stuff. I appreciate it. So JT, thank you for joining us. I wish you continued recovery. You look amazing. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for your time and hope we can do this again sometime.
1: Great, uh, great exercise, Joe. Good for you. Proud of you. And so glad to have you as a great friend. And I'm so appreciative of the things you're doing in your career and in your life. And I wish you the very best in in things going forward for you.
0: Awesome, JT. Hopefully next time I'm out in Irvine, I'll, I'll, I'll say hello, man. Good to see you, man. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Joe. Take care, man.